I was talking with someone uh, this last week who, <laughs> in the course of the conversation, was very clear that this person was uh, very agitated, very upset, great consternation over a friend of his, a friend who had promised something and didn't carry through. Uh, he had asked for assurances, now you're going to be there, I need you, all, all that week before, and, and the friend said, oh yeah, yep, yeah, I got you covered, I'll be there to help you. And just uh, a couple hours before this assistance was needed, the friend bailed and said, I can't make it, leaving this other person in a bit of a complete mess. Uh, he was expressing his anger. You know, it is often said, a man is only as good as his word. Now, I, I think that can be debated somewhat, but um, let me ask you, would you keep taking your car to a mechanic who kept promising you it would be done at such and such a time, at such and such a cost, and time and time again, it came in late and over budget? Or would you continue voting for a politician who claimed and made all these promises and never, never carried them through? Would you hire someone who didn't show up for their interview, <laughs> who broke their word about that interview process? I, I realize it could be difficult to keep our promises 100% of the time. In fact, the older I get, um, man, if I don't put things down in my calendar, uh, it's scary how quickly I can forget something. It's got to be in that calendar, and it's got to remind me. I can even put it in the calendar, and if I forget to put the alert on there, it's, uh, it can be. And you know what it is? I, I broke a promise. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. If I miss an appointment, I have, I have broken my word because I made a commitment to that. What if the person in question was God himself? Does God ever break his word? Does he ever break his promises? What if it was God who failed us and not fulfilling his promise? Now this is a very real question that the Apostle Paul is addressing in his letter to the Romans. Um, let me explain this. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. At the very end of Romans chapter 8, Paul asks this very important question in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on and says, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then he adds, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm convinced of it, says Paul. Nothing separates us from his love. But it, it raises a particularly thorny issue 
that Paul has to address regarding, is that true, the truthfulness of God's Word? If it is true that nothing separates us from His love, if that's true, then what about Israel? What about the Jews? For you see, as Paul was writing this letter to the Romans, it was very clear something majorly wrong had happened with Israel. They had crucified their Messiah. They had rejected him. And in fact, as Paul is writing this to Roman believers, it was obvious that the Gentile world was turning in droves to Jesus. And it was the Jews who were fighting against it. That it was also evident that the Jews were still under great oppression from, from Rome. <laughs> where, where was God? Where were the promises of God? And it would, you looked at the situation of that day and you could clearly come to a conclusion. <clears throat> you know, God must have, he must have been finished with the Jews. What about God's promises to Israel? A chosen people. The nation that God says, I will love you forever and ever. Had God changed his mind? Had his word somehow failed? Was his promise no good to Israel? If it's really true that nothing separates us from his love when he promises to bestow it upon us, then what about Israel? Questions that, quite frankly, are still being asked today, 2,000 years later. Now, under divine inspiration, the Apostle Paul, in this letter to the Romans, will take three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, to address that issue. I've mentioned earlier that the Apostle Paul quoted from the book of uh, Isaiah uh, more than any Old Testament book. I mean, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the, in the New Testament other than the Psalms. And Paul was the one who quoted it the most. In fact, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, 11 times Paul goes to the book of Isaiah. Now, Paul was, you know, grew up in Judaism. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. My guess is he had even uh, memorized, probably verbatim, the prophet of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, those 66 chapters. He knew Isaiah up and down, back and forth, inside out. He knew Isaiah. And when he was going to deal with this very thorny issue, what about the Jews? There was no better book to go to than the book that we have just been studying the last year and a half the book Isaiah. So let's consider this morning how Paul used Isaiah. In the section of Scripture that Isaiah is most quoted, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Are you ready to be here till 2 in the afternoon? <laughs> now, let's step back real quickly. Let's recall some of the grand themes of Isaiah, like Isaiah, Isaiah's... Uh, uh, seemingly constant references to God's coming judgment. For instance, Isaiah 66, 
Behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by a sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. This is a theme that's repeated over and over again. Isaiah warns about God's coming judgment upon not just Israel, but on all the nations. Now, he also wrote, of course, about coming world peace and righteousness. He talked about uh, the Lord is going to uh, start a, a new heaven and a new earth. Back up here. Are we having troubles again this morning with our, or is it just me? He says in chapter 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. I'm going to do something new, God says. I'm going to create a world of righteousness and peace and joy. And the time of blessing for Israel, like chapter 52. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he has redeemed Jerusalem. Or chapter 44. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. For you're my servant, I have formed you. You're my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. I'm not going to forget you the Lord God says. I promise. Or in chapter 54, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. I'm going to love you forever and ever. Oh, for a moment, briefly, my anger was shown. But I'm going to love you. The mountains may fall and the hills may shake, but my covenant, my love will never be shaken. You will not be forgotten by me. Everlasting compassion, says the Lord God. Paul was well acquainted with those verses and many like them in the book of Isaiah. But people were saying in Paul's day, <laughs> wait a minute. It sure doesn't seem like God's loving kindness is being perpetuated. It sure doesn't seem like he has not forgotten them. Look what they have done. They took the servant of the Lord that Isaiah had prophesied, and they put him on a cross. They said, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. And then after even the resurrection, they're denying it. The religious leaders of Judaism had convinced the people that um, this is all a fake. It's all a farce. Has God's word failed? This is what Paul is dealing with. Now, chapter 9, verse 6, he hits it, he, uh, hits it head on 
in verse 6. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. And this is what Paul is going to develop in these next three chapters. Just made a very bold statement. It is not as though God's Word has failed. In the first five verses of Romans 9, Paul has talked about his own grief, his sadness for his people. They've been given all these blessings. What is happening? Has God's Word failed? No, it is not as though God's Word has failed. And he goes on in chapter 9 to emphasize that God never promised eternal salvation to every individual Jew. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Just because you are born a Jew doesn't mean you're going to be born again. And Paul develops that in Romans chapter 9. Salvation, he says, is never a birthright. It is freely bestowed by a sovereign God as he so desires. Look at verse 22 of chapter 9. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his, his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he's called from, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Paul makes a case. He's, God is not obligated to universally save everyone and bring them to heaven. He has prepared vessels of mercy to make known the riches of his glory. And some of those vessels of mercy are from the Gentiles, and some, some, some are from the Jewish people. God's word has not failed because there is a remnant that God will spare. And this is where he quotes Isaiah. Look at verse 27 of Romans 9. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah cries out, it says, concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom, we would have resembled Gomorrah. Gomorrah. There would have been nothing left to the Jewish people. And he's quoting this from Isaiah. This is the word of Isaiah. God has vessels of mercy from among the Jews, a remnant. And though they are like the sands of the sea, it was a remnant that God has spared, that God has rescued and delivered. Paul continues that argument, and he further adds that not only is it simply God's sovereign plan to rescue only a remnant, it was also foretold by Isaiah, and so Paul again is drawing upon the book of Isaiah. He's saying that there's also from the book of Isaiah this truth that the Jewish people would actually reject their Messiah. Isaiah foretold that. And here again, I, uh, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28. Look at verse 30 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which comes by faith. But Israel, 
pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And now he quotes Isaiah, for it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, yet he who believes in him will not be disappointed. They stumbled over the, the rock, the, the, the Messiah. This is a reference to Messiah. And Paul is saying, even Isaiah foretold that. Oh, God's word has not failed. There are a remnant of Jewish people who are vessels of mercy that God is calling for himself. But it's a remnant. And they have stumbled over the rock of offense. And in chapter 10, Paul affirms that Israel, having heard the good news, rejected it. Look down at verse 16 of chapter 10. However, they did not heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Who has? And so faith comes by hearing, verse 17, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Well, indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their, their words to the ends of the world. Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel didn't know, did they? Well, Moses, first of all, says, and he quotes from Deuteronomy, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And now he quotes Isaiah again. He's very bold, Isaiah, and he says this, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. He's talking about the Gentiles. But as for Israel, what does he say? And he quotes from Isaiah 65, all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. Isaiah predicted this. God's word has not failed. He has sovereignly only chosen vessels of mercy, a small remnant. That's his divine plan. And not only that, Israel itself as an entity has turned their back. They've become a, an obstinate and disobedient people. It's not that God's word has failed. Israel has failed. This is Paul's argument. They failed to put their trust in the only means of their eternal salvation, the only means of being spared from coming destruction and wrath of God, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. Paul is saying they've had ample opportunity, but they continue to be a disobedient and obstinate people. They have stumbled, and that's a really kind of a mild term. When you think of stumbling, you think of something, you, you, you know, tripping over something, it seems kind of mild. It's a much more powerful term. It, I, I think it can be translated, they collided. They collided with Jesus Christ. He became to them the rock of offense. And Paul is saying, if only the Jewish people had done what he writes in verse 13, back in verse 13 of chapter 10, as he quotes from Joel, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but they had only put their trust in Jesus Christ, and then publicly proclaimed, that's what call upon the name of the Lord is, in boldness and in confidence proclaimed him, but they did not. 
if they would have, they would have missed the certain coming destruction. They would have been delivered from the wrath to come. Now, history tells us in the short run that indeed that wrath of God did fall. 70 A.D., when the Roman legions marched into that area and surrounded Jerusalem, Titus, the, the general of Rome, and sacked Jerusalem. Jesus had predicted this in Luke 21. Not one stone will be left upon another. Tens of thousands of Jewish people are slaughtered. Tens of thousands of others flee to the far reaches of the world. The judgment of God had fallen. The wrath of God had come. Destruction had come. And with that destruction of Jerusalem and the death and the scattering of the Jewish people, it would have been very easy to conclude God must be finished with Israel. They've rejected the Messiah. He, his program for Israel is over. His promises were not unconditional of everlasting love. His word has not failed because he never intended to carry them through. And he's finished. God's affection for his chosen people are no more. Is that what the Scriptures teach? It would be very easy to look at the present situation of Judaism back in 70 A.D. or even when Paul is writing this, or even today, and conclude, uh-uh, God must be done with Israel. Has God rejected his people? Um, is everlasting compassion now over? And so Paul continues his argument in chapter 11. It builds to this chapter 11. And again, he asks a very important question, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And Paul's answer, surprisingly, shockingly, is, oh, may it never be. God forbid. He says, I too am an Israelite and a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I'm exhibit A. I'm proof number one. I'm a Jew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't, do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Oh, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have stoned, uh, torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And now they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? He's, it's all coming from the story in 1 Kings with Elijah. God responds, and he says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, writes Paul, verse 5, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. You see, in chapter 11, Paul is saying, let me give you two arguments of why God has not rejected his people. The first argument, Israel's failure, or Israel's lostness is not complete or total Look at me. Look at the many others, Jews, who are now following Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior. His second argument, though, is going to be Israel's lostness and failure will not be permanent. We'll see that in just a moment. So Paul is exhibit A. He's proof number one. A remnant of Jewish people had put their trust in Jesus Christ God was faithful to Jewish people individually. They were coming to faith in Christ. In fact, Paul will develop this whole theme as he talks about God has created something new. 
There's something new. It's called the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he even goes on and explains how the dividing wall between Gentiles and Jews has been broken down. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free. There's neither male or female. We're all accepted in Christ. Whoever comes to Christ is all in one body, something new. And Paul calls it, it this is a mystery. <laughs> the Old Testament never talked about this. But anybody, Jew or Gentile, who put their faith in Jesus Christ were now part of something new, the body of Christ. But I thought God's promises in the Old Testament were for the nation of, of Israel as a national entity, not just individuals within that nation. Is that true, Paul? Because if it is true, and we see the situation today, we must conclude God's word has failed. Because Israel as a national entity has not turned to Christ. He continues with his argument. Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And so what then? Verse 7, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Okay, we've got some Jews coming to faith in Christ. God is faithful, right? He's, he's holding forth his promises, right? Because Paul says, I'm an Israelite, and I'm following Jesus, but what about the rest? Well, now we know. The remnant chosen by God have come to faith, but the rest, well, they've been hardened. That's what it says. They've been hardened. Keep reading. Verse 8, he quotes Scripture again. God gave them, a, and again, from Isaiah. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then he quotes from the Psalms. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a, re, a retribution to them. Verse 10, Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. God has, God has hardened the Jewish people. Paul makes a very strong statement, and he quotes Scripture again in Isaiah, and he says, God has given them a spirit, a stupor. Eyes that see not, ears that hear not. God has hardened their heart. But Paul is not finished. He asks another question, verse 11. I say then, did they not stumble so as to fall, did they? Was their stumbling, was their colliding with the stumbling stone complete and total? This, this national entity of Israel, his answer, oh, may it never be. God forbid. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, Paul weaves a very fascinating argument here. Verse 12, now, if their transgression is riches for the world... And their failure has become riches for the Gentiles. How much more do you think will their fulfillment be? What? Yes, when the Jewish people forsook their Messiah, it was God's plan as he hardened their heart to create something new. The, the body of Christ, the church, that's what we are part of. And everyone, anyone, whoever it is around the world, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they become part of this 
this new entity, this organism of life called the body of Christ, because the Jews rejected it has brought riches to the Gentiles. But if that's true, he says, hmm, what might their fulfillment be? Now, he says, I'm speaking to you, verse 13, you are Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry, but if somehow I might move to jealousy in my countrymen and to save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? If their rejection brought eternal salvation to millions and millions of those who were not the chosen people, what would happen if they accepted Christ? Would it not be total life, the end of death? Verse 16, if the first piece of fruit, the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I'm coming to faith. Could that foretell the, that the whole lump of dough will one day? Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being wild olive were grafted in among them, you became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports the root, it's the root who supports you. God made promises with Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless the entire world. How is he going to do that? Through the rich root of this promise to Abraham and this special chosen people. And he's going to graft in wild olive branches. That's you, that's me, that's, we're non-Jews. Don't be arrogant. Remember, it's not you who support the root, it's the root who supports you. Verse 19, and you will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's right. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand by your faith, but don't be conceited. Fear, verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you either, O Gentiles, non-Jews. Verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Yes, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off, O Gentiles. Verse 23, and they also if they do not continue in their unbelief, can be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to the nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? He's talking about the nation of Israel. Oh, we could just... Stop, as Paul did earlier, and say, look, God is faithful to this remnant. I'm a Jew. I'm getting saved. There's thousands of Jewish people following Jesus as their Messiah. Let's just leave it at that. Let's just say, God, we, we misunderstood God in the Old Testament in Isaiah when he talked about everlasting love, everlasting compassion. The mountains may move, the hills may be shaken, but my covenant of peace will never be moved. My co compassion will never be shaken from you, O Israel, my people. Well, he really didn't mean that. Let's just be content that there's Jewish people who are part of the body of Christ and leave it at that. 
Paul says, no. <laughs> because that's not what God said. And God's word is on trial. How can we say who will separate us from the love of God if somehow in some way, some mysterious way, the nation of Israel isn't grafted back in? And so in verse 25, he, bring, he comes to completion, his argument. And he says in verse 25, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And here it is, this mystery. Mystery that had never been proclaimed in the Old Testament, but it's now brought by divine inspiration to this apostle Paul that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. That's the first part. Until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and now verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. Three parts to this mystery. He says Israel's hardening as a nation, as a national entity, is partial. Israel's hardening by God is only temporary. And thirdly, Israel's hardening as a national entity will come to an end one day. Verse 26, and thus all Israel will be saved. And guess where he goes to support that? Isaiah. Isaiah 59. Just as it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove on God in us from whom? From Jacob. Why? This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. It says I promise that. My word will not fail. Oh, I know it looks like it has, but it will not fail. From the standpoint of the gospel, yep, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God says it, he means it. When he promises it, he'll carry it through. For just as, verse 30, once you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy, for God has shut up in all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And Paul says, okay, God has been vindicated. <laughs> when it's all said and done now, this section, Romans 9, 10, 11, is one of the greatest sections on the character, on the veracity of a God who has spoken. And God is vindicated. His word stands true. His righteousness, his righteous character is firm. His word is sure. His promises are unshakable. His righteousness is solid. God stands vindicated. And so there's one more thing to do. Verse 33 is to worship. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And where does he go? Where does he find that scripture? Isaiah. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God's word is certain. It's sure. So let me 
end this morning where we began with that question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No. And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us with an everlasting love, who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. For I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that neither death nor life or angels or principalities or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul says, I'm convinced of that. And let me give you one word why I am convinced of it. Israel. 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 Because God made promises. And Paul is saying under divine inspiration, God will fulfill those promises. Yes, it does not look like it today. And we could say 2,000 years after Paul wrote that, yep, it doesn't look like it today. But God's word is certain and sure. The good news this morning is we serve a God who cannot break his promises. Cannot break his promises. When he says he's going to provide for us, he does. When he says he's going to be with us wherever we go, he is. When he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he means it. When he said he's going to give us wisdom if we ask for it, he will, because he promised it. If he says, I, I can turn your hardships into something that is good if you love me, he does that. He says he's, he'll allow us to reap what we sow, we most certainly will. When he says, I will forgive you if you confess your sins, he does that. He says he's, he's going to come back someday and receive us unto himself. He will. He says, I'm going to defeat the powers of darkness, of Satan. I'm going to cast him to the lake of fire. He will do that. And all the other promises that we come to his word, we never, ever, ever have to doubt the truthfulness the, the heart of God that when he says something, he will do it. Why? Israel. What's his character? And when God says, I will give you eternal life as a free gift, free gift, by simply believing in me, he will. There's no fine print, bottom line, read the next page. That's free because he said it. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you here today as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ? The good news is that God, who never breaks his promise, who never, his word has never changed, has said to you, I invite you and will give you a free gift of eternal life. I will forgive your sins. I will remember them no more. I will call you my son, my daughter. You will be part of my family. I will give you the free gift of eternal life.
and you have to do nothing for it. Nothing, I promise. Put your faith in Christ. He's the one who offers and gives eternal life freely. He died, he rose again. Trust Jesus. But what's that look like? It's simply saying, I believe that to be true. I transfer my trust off of how to get to heaven from myself, from my good works. I put it on Christ and Christ alone. And in that transference of trust, of faith, to Christ and Christ alone, the free gift of eternal life is ours. Why? Because there's a God in heaven who keeps his word. And God's people said, amen. Father, thank you for being that kind of a God. And we look to Israel and think, oh my goodness, Lord, how could you, why would you ever want to carry that through? Over and over again, you said they're a disobedient and obstinate people. Yet somehow, Father, your promises to that nation of Israel, somehow when you return, when the deliverer comes from Zion, comes for Zion, when Jesus Christ returns, Father, in the end of, of human history as you have planned it, somehow, in some way, that nation is going to turn to faith in you, in the fulfillment of all your promises. But Father, thank you for keeping your word to them, but Father, thank you for keeping your word to me, to us. That every day, Father, we get up, every day is a, is a wonderful opportunity to experience the truthfulness of your word. May we leave here this morning with this complete confidence like the Apostle Paul, convinced that nothing will separate us from your love in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.